I just want to welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar series, uh, Colloquium. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1, and we have become virtual. Um, and so I'm very excited about this week's panel. I'm going to uh, put the microphone over to Modesta uh, Abugu, and I'll let you uh, introduce the panel. And I know that you all have some schedules for the speakers and time. So I'll let you go ahead and, and do that introduction. So welcome everyone and, and thank you all for coming. Sure, thanks Don. Hi everyone and welcome to this uh, colloquium. We are super excited to have you all at this panel that was organized by the Biofuse cohort three members. And my name is Modesta Bugu, like Don mentioned, and I'm one of the members of the cohort. Over the course of the panel, uh, other members of the cohort will step in to introduce our speakers so we'll get to meet everyone. But please, other members, can you please say a thumbs up? Or, you know, okay. Hi. So we are really glad to be here with you all today um, to talk about this topic, which was really interesting to us. Um, we chose the topic because we hope to learn more about the interaction of genetically engineered crops with various agricultural markets and how this has been impacting our society and continues to impact our society. Um, I'm sure some of you all must have had similar questions on what informs the development of GE crops? Is it the farmers, is it the consumers, or is it the industry? Or is it even the market demand or money? So we are really glad to have excellent biotechnology leaders who will help us answer some of those questions. So quickly, we'll, go, uh, we'll start by introducing our panelists, after which uh, they'll give an eight minutes presentation each. And after that, we'll proceed proceed with the panel question and answer session. So please feel free to drop in your questions in the chat and we'll open up the panel to answer that. So to that end, it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. He is also my very good friend and colleague, MD Arif Hossein. Arif is the CEO of Farming Future Bangladesh and a visiting fellow at the Cornell, at Cornell University. And today we'll get to hear about his work to improve access to innovation for smallholder farmers in agriculture and um, small smallholder farmers in Bangladesh. Excuse me. So Amanda. Thanks so much, Modesta. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Mark Yelin. He is an esteemed scientist with a PhD in biotechnology and a strong research background focusing on all things plant genetics. He is currently the global leader of the Biotechnology Research Program at the International Potato Center and is responsible for CIP's efforts to release a transgenic potato completely resistant to late blight in sub-Saharan African countries. To you, Eric. All right. Our other panelist is Dr. Paul Thompson. He currently holds the W.K. Kellogg Chair in Agriculture, Food, and Community Ethics at Michigan State University. He spent uh, his career uh, in research and teaching focused on ethical and philosophical uh, topics in food and agriculture in general. And with that, I'll turn it over to the panelists. Thanks for those introductions. So, Arif, we have the floor now. Uh, thank you, Modesta. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, you have already uh, made the introduction of me, and I will not spend more time on that. 
So today I would like to, uh, as I can realize that uh, the, all the participants we have here and the panelists, uh, we have an expert, you know, like pool here. So um, um, I, I'd rather like start my stopwatch so that I can keep it in short and brief. Um, I would like to share the background that we have, uh, the biotech, uh, you know, like innovation and research that has been functional and streamlined in Bangladesh and in, in, in some neighboring country, and how effectively it's changing life of farmer or whether it's making any change or not. So those kind of real life background, I think might, you know, like uh, be interesting for, for you all. So to start with that, I would rather uh, jump into like the little history of biotech and GMO in Bangladesh. So back in 2000, uh, all these, you know, like ag expert and uh, donor communities, they, 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 they initiated a regional conference. And based on that, they initiated this uh, agri-biotech uh, uh, development project that had a couple of crops, including BT eggplant, uh, lead blight resistant potato, tomato, papaya, and uh, crops like cassava, uh, banana, uh, 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 cotton, and rice, and few few additional crops. And uh, they, they they titled the project uh, Agri Biotech um, Support uh, Project. That was probably the title of the project, funded by USAID and a couple of other partners. And since then, they started developing these crops based on the priority set by local stakeholder. Uh, set, and, and, and the local stakeholders identified these particular crops uh, based on the demand and feasibility. For example, some of the biotech crops that we know that are actually couldn't be um, effective. People spend their time but could not make that functional or those are not very effective. So the scientists, public research institute scientists, they identified few crops that they can develop and farmers will be beneficial to adopt them. And since 2000, they started, you know, like uh, uh, developing the uh, backcrossing the gene, developing different crops. For example, for BT eggplant, they had to deal with the resistance of the crop from uh, fruit and shoot borer insect, which has a devastating effect uh, on the eggplant. Almost like, you know, uh, 40 to 50% crops are actually destroyed by eggplant, fruit, and shoot borer uh, uh, pest attack. And even after spraying pesticide, which for like other conventional eggplant variety, uh, farmer used to spray 80 to 100%, 80 to 100 times. Uh, and uh, they spend more than like uh, 60 to 70% of the production cost just for spraying. And even after so much spraying, they could not save uh, half of the crop. I've been traveling in the field see, since 2013 and I've seen all this like happening that I've seen BT eggplant field and the neighboring non-BT eggplant field and they have completely different scenario. So uh, when scientists started developing this uh, variety, uh, they had the back crossing with local traits and local variety. And back in 2012, uh, we had some issue with with, with like other friends on the other side of the table. I don't like to mention them as anti-GM activists, but they filed court case in Bangladesh, in India, and in Philippines. So fortunately, they were able to stop it in Philippines and in India. 
with the court case. And the Environment Minister of India during that time, Joyram Ramesh, he was unable to uh, deregulate BT plant in India. But fortunately, we had a very passionate ag, ag minister, uh, and uh, we had a strong political support uh, for the approval of BT plant during that time. And back in 2013, on October 30, uh, Bangladesh government approved four varieties of BT plant. And only 20 farmers received seedling in 2014 in the first winter season. Uh, out of 2014 farmers, 12 or 13 farmers actually failed to uh, have any crop in the field because anti-GM activists, uh, you know, like group and those people uh, backed by Greenpeace and some of the friends of Bandana Shiva, they travel in the field, uh, they influence the farmers on the field and they kind of like demotivated them that stop taking care of the crop. I mean, this eggplant, they are resistant to insect and this might be poisonous to your body. So those kind of messages were delivered to the community. And then the government had a strategy. They took a different strategy. They stopped sharing public profile of the farmer. Next year, they provided seeds to 250 farmer. On the following year, 500 farmer. And eventually the numbers are increasing. And uh, last year we had around um, more than like around 50,000 farmers uh, cultivated uh, BT plant in Bangladesh. And these are all inbreed variety meaning that farmers actually can save the seed and can distribute it to the community. So all this background, I took like maximum of my time to sharing the background because, you know, like this seed and this uh, technology was developed for the community, for the farmer who can get benefit of it. And corporations had some like intervention in it because this seed and the gene was donated by Mahiko, but it was absolutely like uh, 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 these inbreed varieties are given free from the Public Research Institute. And recently we have done some study, uh, BT eggplant actually reduced around like 35% of the pest use and significantly increased the income of the farmer. To be very specific, uh, many of the farmers actually got almost like six-fold increased profit from the crop. So why eggplant is important? Because we have uh, nearly like 99 major vegetable crop in Bangladesh and eggplant holds probably the second position in Bangladesh. Uh, we consume it almost like around the year. So it has some economical benefit and you know, like viability in it. And as we have seen that uh, in last almost like 25 years of time, yeah, uh, we have um, more than like 29 countries who are uh, actively uh, invested in development of biotech and GM crop. More than 72 countries are actually important biotech and GM crop. And uh, some of the crops has like major contribution in eggplant and biotech. So my, 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 my message to, to, to the uh, uh, participant is that this technology is not very old, but for many of the countries is pretty new, but with the like attention and the importance that we get from US and from North American countries and from Europe. So some of the countries like Bangladesh and my friends in Africa, we are in dilemma, particularly for the political people who take vote from the people and who rely on like, like the public opinion. For example, in case of India, uh, they are one of the largest, you know, like importer for mustard. They have 
a GM mustard variety, but they could not get it deregulated because of the public opinion. But when we have a political pressure or political support for like the minister of Motia Choudhury, then we get things deregulated for BTX plan. We have uh, golden rice approved in Philippines, but Bangladesh could not get golden rice approved in Bangladesh. So all these biotech crops have different stories and different backgrounds. Uh, and we are still learning, but I would say that things need to be moved on so that farmers and consumers can get benefit from it. So I'll stop here and uh, uh, want to hear from more from, from the other panelists. Thank you. Arif, thank you so much. Um, Mark, off to you. Okay, thank you to the organizer for the kind words of introduction and for the invitation to this uh, colloquium. Um, first of all, I, I, I understand that you are quite interested in the decision-making process uh, for choosing to, to develop genetically engineered crops. Um, on our side, I think it's important to, to know that we are not for profit organizations, so we don't need to have any financial return from deploying any crop. This is very important. We also consider, uh, of course, like uh, it was said already, the local priorities. Uh, obviously, we, we do not want to, we want to provide solution to an existing real significant problem in agricultural production. And we do this by consulting the Ministry of Agriculture agencies, as well as our local stakeholder. Um, of course, um, the technology should be sustainable and equitable. We wouldn't release any agriculture technology, GM or not, that would uh, you know, increase the divide between male and women farmer, for example. Uh, we also wouldn't like to, to deploy anything that we know in advance that it's not going to last more than a couple of years. Of course, another criteria is the legal framework. The legal framework must be in place and must be operational and, and uh, reputable, etc. But then finally, I would say that we have also a criteria on the cultural sensitivity. Uh, for example, in the, in the Andes in Peru, we decided not to release, even if it was, uh, even, even doing research field trial, we decided not to do, because there was too much of uh, uh, local uh, hostility uh, towards this kind of technology. So having said that, I had prepared a few slides that I want to show you. I wanted first to start with a question, why uh, genetically engineering, in engineered crops? Why should we do that? Uh, just as a reminder, there is still hunger and poverty in rural areas in many parts of the world, unfortunately. By 2050, we estimate there is a need for 70% more food production. There's not one single technology that can achieve this. We need to mobilize all different options. We need to produce more on less land. Uh, the land available for cultivation is decreasing. We need to, re to reduce the use of non-renewable inputs like chemical pesticides or chemical fertilizer. And we need to reduce the impact of agriculture on climate change. These are at least the uh, high level uh, reason why we should uh, do something. For some traits and crops, not all, of course, there they, they are genetic solutions that are now available using genetic engineering. 
And just for the record, we have almost 13% of the total cultivated area today, which is cultivated by GM, without a single, uh, after 25 years, no single adverse effect on human and animal health and the environment. We have also evidence that pesticide <clears throat> can be reduced significantly, yield can be increased and income can increase, and that the small-scale farmers in developing countries can benefit from this technology. So why not? And here I want to show you a few slides supporting our work on developing and releasing potato with a complete resistance to lay blight. For those who do not know, lay blight has been this uh, disease that decimated the Irish population in the uh, 1840s. And it is still a major, the number one constraint in potato produ production everywhere. The, the, the main, uh, the, on, the only effective way to control this disease is by using uh, fungicide, including in organic farming, you need to, to use fungicides, um, <clears throat> which comes with problems of access and proper handling in, uh, in developing country for small scale farmers. Um, breeding, of course, has been successful to some extent to increase the, the resistance to lead light or tolerance but the main problem is just as shown in this example. For example, uh, the, the wild relative of potato like Solanum bulbacastanum, uh, to transfer one of these genes to potato variety, commercial variety, it has taken 46 years. Of course, today we could, breeding can do it uh, faster thanks to gen genomic assisted breeding, but still it is a very, very long and tedious process, in particular in potato. So we transferred these three genes, two from Solanum bulbocastanum and one from Solanum venturi, into farmer-preferred varieties. These names, uh, Victoria, Sante, Tigoni, Shangi, Jalene, are varieties that are preferred by farmers and that are popular in, in our countries. And since 2015, in 70 trials in three locations and two seasons per year in Uganda, we have observed complete resistance to lead light. As you can see on this picture, uh, the, the, in, in the front, you have a non-transgenic uh, uh, potato, completely decimated by labelite. And at the back, you have uh, the, uh, the transgenic uh, potato completely resistant without a single drop of pesticide. And uh, the person here is my, my main assistant, Eric Magembe. Here we have the, the harvest at the harvest time. On the picture, you see the on the left side, that's the harvest, a normal harvest of the transgenic potato. And on the right side, that's the harvest when you don't protect your non-transgenic potato with fungicide. So what are the benefits? Of course, we, we have, we provide to the farmer their preferred variety. It's not a new variety, which comes with different traits that they don't, don't like. So that's very easy for adoption. We think that with that, we will reduce by more than 90% fungicide application. And actually, in all of our trials, not a single spray of fungicide was needed. Uh, yield will be increased. That's always a bit difficult to measure uh, the yield because it depends how much the farmers has access to fungicide. It depends also on the weather severity of the disease. And we've estimated that the profit gain will be a minimum of 44%, uh, percent, which means a lot for small-scale farmers for 
growing, living from out of potato, increasing by 50% your income. I think that's significant. Just imagine if you get a 50% salary increase, what it will make to your life. Uh, then there is also health benefits that are quite important because I, I mentioned farmers, especially small-scale farmers in developing countries, don't have usually access to the needed protective equipment. This is all what I wanted to, to say about the potato labelite and my, our decision process and the justification why we believe this is a wonderful technology. And we hope that the farmers, African farmers will be given the opportunity to, to use it. Thank you very much. Yes, wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Paul, off to you. Okay, good. So I think of these uh, issues uh, with a kind of a, a layer cake model. And so I'm going to talk through that. Uh, at the bottom of the layer cake, uh, we actually have a phenomenon uh, called the technology treadmill. And uh, I have a nice slide for explaining this, but if I went through it in detail, I'd blow my whole eight minutes. So I'm going to butcher the economics here, but the basic idea is that the, the supply curve, uh, which is what determines producer behavior, uh, is really a mix of high and low cost producers. And so there's some that are relatively higher and some that are relatively lower. But when you introduce a new technology, uh, it's going to increase efficiencies and the early adopters and probably the uh, relatively low cost Producers are going to be the ones that uh, pick that up. Um, the what the sociologists used to call the laggards um, are so their costs are going to go down. Uh, they're going to have some profits, uh, but uh, these people up here at the top are going to go bankrupt. So they just disappear completely. And the net effect of that is that the whole uh, curve comes down. Um, and uh, so even the farmers who adopted this technology and were doing really well for that period of time uh, when prices were high uh, are ultimately just running harder to stay in the same place. So these innovations uh, uh, tend uh, not to produce some of the long-term stable benefits for farmers that they're uh, claimed to produce. Um, the other thing that's happening, of course, is that the people that are going bankrupt, uh, the farmers that have made money go out and buy up their land and they have bigger farms. Uh, they may actually incur some longer run benefits because they're essentially uh, expanding the size of their operation. But the other side of this is that you have this structural trend toward fewer and larger farms, and this transforms the whole agricultural sector. So I tend to see two ethical issues here. One is what kind of consideration should we give to these losers in this kind of a, a situation? And I think that's a complicated problem. Uh, and the other is, is there a problem with this trend to fewer but larger farms? More of a structural uh, issue in terms of what we think uh, agriculture should look like. So I see that as a fairly broad problem with, uh, uh, with agricultural technology generation, although many people would just say that there's no ethical problem here. Uh, they would say that the benefits outweigh the costs. After all, the price of food is coming down, more food's available. And some people would just say, that's just how capitalism works. So we've got that kind of base layer. And then on top of that, we have uh, examples of innovations that have uh, disproportionately benefited already advantaged groups. And we have good discussions of green revolution technology here, where 
you had these uh, seeds, but you couldn't really use these seeds unless you could fertilize them. And so the only people that were really able to use these seeds had to go out and buy fertilizer, possibly some other equipment too. So it tended to benefit better capitalized farmers. Uh, we also have uh, technologies that are not scale neutral. Uh, this is a tomato harvester, really good literature on the introduction of mechanical tomato harvesters in uh, California in the 1960s that uh, transformed the industry from several thousand producers to a couple of dozen over the course of about five years. Uh, so these kinds of uh, things are, are fairly well understood. Uh, and the same kinds of questions come up, uh, whether or not uh, there's any issue with respect to the disadvantaged producers. And I think that there are some answers that are being addressed with respect to some of these kinds of problems, if, to the extent that you're emphasizing genetic gain uh, as opposed to needing some other technology in order to benefit, uh, you may be responding to some of these kinds of questions. Uh, but we also get a response that just says, well, there's no ethical issue here because the benefits still outweigh the costs, or that's just the way capitalism works. It isn't only agriculture that experiences uh, this kind of phenomenon. Um, I think there's another layer to the cake, however, and that is that there are some innovations that interact with structural injustices. And here I would cite some US examples. Uh, we have well-documented uh, uh, discrimination and implementation of programs at USDA. Um, uh, groups have won several uh, important lawsuits against USDA for having uh, discriminated in the way that uh, they made uh, farm programs available and uh, on racial lines. Uh, so these are, are pretty straightforward ways in which structural elements of a political system uh, would uh, interact with new technologies coming online and create ethical issues. Um, some uh, PhD students in, uh, uh, at Texas Tech who are working on cotton alerted me to a, another problem. Uh, you know, cotton is a perennial, and uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, it actually took quite a bit of uh, in-field expertise to harvest cotton because you had to be out in the field almost every day uh, selectively picking the cotton uh, blooms that were ready. There were machines that were available uh, to address this problem, but they weren't being used because the cotton was not adapted to uh, machine harvesting. Uh, starting in the 1930s, the uh, Roosevelt administration started trying to address some of the obvious structural issues <clears throat> with cotton production which had to do with the way that sharecropping was operating and uh, exploitation by landowners and unfair kinds of agreements. Uh, but this was essentially undercut when cotton breeders developed varieties of cotton that could be machine harvesting. So instead of uh, reforming their sharecropping operations, the uh, cotton growers in the U.S. South uh, basically just got rid of all their sharecroppers and started machine harvesting their cotton. And this precipitated uh, what's called the Great Mar uh, Migration, or at least it was a factor in that, and uh, is actually a continuing element of some of the structural racism issues in the United States. I don't accuse cotton breeders of doing that intentionally, but it's a good example of the way in which uh, a kind of genetics-based breeding program can actually interact with uh, complicated kinds of uh, structural factors. I'd also say that I, th I think this case needs... Uh, more research. I, I offer it more as a hypothesis than as a, a demonstrated uh, uh, example. 
So just broadly, although I've talked about the US, uh, I think there are probably some similarities under colonialism. So what happens when we, um, I guess I would say there, it's getting hard to say there's no ethical issue here, but some have said this isn't really something that agricultural researchers need to think about. So finally, we get to gene technology. I see gene technology as just the icing on this layer cake. Um, it's the place where some of these other issues are finally becoming visible to people who don't pay too much attention to agriculture most of the time. Uh, and uh, in some respects, some of the issues that have been surfaced with connection to gene technology are in no sense unique to, genetic, to gene technology, uh, but uh, they are the first time that many uh, people are becoming aware of them. Uh, the other thing I'd note is that uh, there is this connection between gene technology and uh, clearly ethically problematic social initiatives. And I think this colors the way people see gene technology. Um, here's showing a poster uh, that was uh, uh, used to promote um, eugenics. And you'll notice that they're actually relying on an agricultural image here. I think that uh, uh, in current thinking on race and racial issues, there's actually not enough attention to the way in which many of our cultural ideas about heredity and racial identity um, have their roots in agriculture and in agricultural breeding. Uh, I'd also note that uh, this, uh, I think, best sociological study of opposition to genes uh, suggests that some of the people that were most uh, active in developing opposition uh, were people who were actually focused on some of these human issues, and they saw this as a way of sort of getting a kind of cultural acceptance to gene technology that would spill over into the field. So I'm becoming more uh, radicalized in my old age and starting to think about ways in which uh, uh, racial uh, disparities and racial images may in some sense be related to agriculture. Uh, I don't know how we should be thinking about this, those of us that work in agriculture, but I do think that they deserve more attention uh, than they're currently getting. And I'll stop with that. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. You've all, you've all given us a lot to discuss here. Um, Nolan, I'll hand it off to you to run our Q&A. Sure. Uh, thanks to all the speakers, Arif, Paul, Mark. Uh, that was wonderful. We had a couple questions coming in um, in the last couple of minutes there. So we're going to start with um, Zach Brown, who had a question for Arif. Um, Zach, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you... Go ahead and, and voice that question yourself if you're comfortable with that. Just go ahead and unmute yourself. Um, sure. Can you hear me? Great. Uh, yeah, I was just curious. I mean, I don't know what. I mean, I work on resi BT resistance management in, in other contexts, and I wasn't aware of what's being done in Bangladesh to manage potential BT resistance um, in eggplant. And so I was just curious, you know, what what whether there's any governance or regulation for that, or um, or what's in place. Thanks. Yeah, uh, fantastic question. Actually, we, we have a case study in India. So the first uh, generation of BT cotton in India, which was a single gene crop, actually failed. Uh, because the way, you know, like the, uh, uh, the technology was transformed and delivered for large scale adoption in India, uh, farmers were advised to uh, plant non-BT uh, cotton. 
but mostly farmers did not follow the instruction because planting non-BT cotton means that they will lose the whole crop. I mean, that non-BT part. So they did not follow the uh, instruction and ultimately what happened, those, you know, like insect, they naturally had resistant. So in just 10 to 12 years in India, uh, BT cotton got resistance and then they had to uh, intervene with the uh, double and triple gene variety in India from Mahiko and other partner in India. So similarly, we think that similar thing might happen in Bangladesh, but fortunately the BT expand coverage is not uh, that much because uh, this is not a cash crop. BT eggplant is not a cash crop. So we have a very limited number of farmers who actually grow uh, eggplant. Um, just almost like 150,000 farmers uh, throughout the country, they grow it. And right now from the scientists and from the research institute, uh, we prescribed them to plant a non-BT eggplant variety so that uh, it can have a refuge crop. There is no like, specific proportion for it, but usually we suggest them to put 5% of the like non-BT crop. And as I mentioned that we have, we don't have a 100% coverage of BT eggplant in Bangladesh. So we have a natural uh, environment so that the pest can live uh, on their own. And thirdly, as part of the IPM strategy and as part of the like project strategy, uh, our research institute, Bangladesh Agriculture Research Institute, they are planning to develop a double gene eggplant variety so that they have a like long-term sustainable approach and plan. So these are like the few approaches that we have for the BT eggplant. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Arif. Um, next, we have a question from Allison. Um, it's quite long, so I'm going to let Allison uh, in there, a couple in there. So I'm going to let Allison go ahead and take that. Okay, yeah, sorry. I'm just, um, this is mostly for Mark, but I'm open to other thoughts as well. So you mentioned prioritizing the longevity of released varieties and being familiar with late blight and knowing that it's been quite successful in overcoming resistant genes in the past. I was wondering if you have, you know, anything you guys do to really estimate longevity in terms of effectiveness in the field? I mean, I know pyramiding is a strategy, but do you, I guess, model how long that's going to work? Do you try to look for our genes with different functional capabilities? Um, just kind of wondering how you approach that, knowing, I guess, how aggressive late blight has been in the past. Yeah, the, this is a great question, which comes up always, and which is uh, also a question we, we have, of course. Um, so I don't have a very, a very uh, definitive answer to that. First of all, um, we have chosen genes that are known to be to have a broad spectrum resistance, for which the compatible isolates are rare, um, and for which there's no known compatible isolate that will overcome all three together. Because otherwise, we would already know that there's some place where this uh, tragedy potato would not be effective. Um, now, the question whether pyramiding three genes is enough, we don't know. Maybe we, we should pyramid four, maybe five, maybe six, maybe seven, maybe eight. I don't know. Um, so at, at that level, we, we don't have yet an answer. What we know is that by the choice of the gene, by stacking, we, we put us in the, in the best situation to have a long-lasting uh, uh, resistant uh, potato. What 
<clears throat> we we are planning to do uh, is uh, to have uh, other events of the same variety with other combination of our gene with the idea that if the pathogen starts to overcome the release variety, we will have a, let's a sort of a, a, a new event of the same variety with another set of resistant genes that will be ready for being deployed in order to uh, uh, replace the, the variety that has been, has been a release. So I, I think the, at this point, I think we, we are putting all condition on our side so that the material is going to be durable resistant. But of course, there, there is no guarantee it will be the case. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Okay, next we have a question from Jason that I will let him ask. It's also for Arif. And then Eli, I see your hands. So we'll go to Eli next. And then uh, Nora has a great question um, after that. So Jason, Eli, and then Nora. Thanks, Nolan. Um, and thanks to the speakers. Uh, just a, a quick question for Mark and Arif. Um, we've, we've had other colloquia in the past um, that have shown how difficult it is to measure um, the impact on farmers who adopt uh, new varieties, whether they're genetically engineered or otherwise improved um, in terms of their production processes and their profits. And I just wonder if there are any peer-reviewed studies yet on these kinds of initiatives um, in terms of the BT eggplant or the, um, the, the potato that's resistant to late blight. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Jason. Yeah, we have we a have few peer-reviewed uh, studies um, published in uh, Frontier and Plus One and other thing. I will share the link in the chat box. And uh, back in 2018, uh, we had a study conducted by IFRI, International Food Research Institute, on the like socioeconomic benefit of BT eggplant. Uh, so these are the like few official studies that we have for potato. Uh, I would say that we don't have any official study published until today because the potato is not uh, in the field, not for farmers until today. Uh, but as you know that uh, Bangladesh is the seventh largest, you know, like potato producing country and uh, it's a cash crop. Uh, and for lead blight resistant uh, disease, we have at least 25 to 30% crop, you know, like damaged by, by the fungicide. So I think um, when we will have uh, potato deregulated, this might have a significant economical impact on the farmers and smallholder farmers. Thank you. So if I can complement this uh, uh, answer to that question, um, we, we do not have a really clear study on that. Um, what what I, I think is that it's most likely that the main adopters are going to, to be the small-scale farmers, more than farmers that have a bigger, bigger area. And because of the... Of the consumption and, and uh, uh, trading uh, pattern. Uh, Small-scale farmers uh, will do everything they can do to save uh, any money. That's why they usually they keep on using their own seed, even though they know their own seed, potato seed, uh, have uh, some pathogen uh, instead of uh, buying seed, just because they don't have the, the, the money to buy the seed. The same thing happens with the uh, fungicide to control lead blight, they wait usually too late. They don't use the right quantities, the right quality of fungicide. And so for, for all these reasons, I think they will be the, the main adopters. 
large farmers provide their potatoes to more sophisticated markets because the price is higher, where there might be some reluctance to accept uh, GM potatoes. So that's a factor that I think may we may see once it will be released that small-scale farmers are going to be the main adopters and the large-scale farmers are, being, are going to be, let's say, the, the, next, the next generation. <clears throat> All right, great. Thank you. Um, Eli has been patiently waiting, so I'll let him take a, take a stab at his question. All right, thank you. Um, so uh, you, you talked about having this great approach, which is driven by the public good and has a lot of back and forth with farmers, but the specific technologies you're developing are, are basically the same as what's been done in, in private industry, disease resistance, insect resistance. Um, in the course of taking the approach you have, have, has it led you to consider any types of biotech applications which uh, haven't been seen before, maybe because of some of the uh, considerations of the, the traditional means of developing biotech crops? Um, I don't know if this question is for me or for both, uh, but let me, let me try to answer. Um, disease resistance uh, or disease, uh, the you know, very significant, impact significant productivity. Worldwide, we think that about 20% of the yield, crop yield, is uh, destroyed by, by disease. And uh, we have genetic solutions for disease uh, resistance. Uh, these two, uh, these are the two reasons why we, we are working on that. Uh, and uh, of course, there are, there are probably other traits that are equally important, but uh, there might be not, um, uh, the, you know, the genetic base, the genetic solution available at the moment. So that's, I think these are the reasons why we are focusing right now on, on disease resistance for, for potato. And it's also the number one trait for potato farmers in developing countries. They always come back to, to say that the new varieties, they want to have high yielding and deep blade blight disease resistance. These two traits come always at the top. So we really respond to, we try to respond to the biggest need. I'd like to compliment a few words here. Uh, the smallholder farmer that we, we talk about, I mean, those crops are actually everything for them. I mean, bread and butter and everything. So they, they, they don't compromise with their crop and with their produce. They don't like to compromise with that. So whether it's GM or non-GM, there's a second consideration for them. Their first consideration is that whether they're getting uh, the investment, the return of their investment or not. So for, uh, you know, like mostly like the disease resistant crop that we have globally, uh, the only available options are spraying pesticide, herbicide, or manually managing the crop. And the best poss possible option is actually having these biotech traits. For example, for BT eggplant, they really see the change in the field. I mean, if they see a BT eggplant field and a non-BT eggplant field side by side, they see the real change and real difference in the real time world. And the decision-making process is much easier for them. And uh, to, to tap into like the cultural and like the uh, other thing, you know, uh, 
agriculture has been in a like evolutionary procedure. I mean, with technology and advancement of everything, uh, the, the technology that we have, it was not there 200 years back. So it's constantly changing. With that, we are having more challenge now. The population is growing, land are decreasing, you know, like, so, so, so to, 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 to cope up with that, I think scientists and the policy people who are working on it, they're trying their best. It's not a like silver bullet, but we are trying for a like best manageable option available for farmer and for the community. Thank you. All right, thanks. Um, I'm actually gonna jump down a bit and get uh, get Paul in the loop a little here. Um, so we had a question from Dylan. Um, let me scroll, I gotta find it here. Um, Dylan, would you like to ask this question or do you want me to take it? Sure, I got it. Okay. So this is just something that came to my mind uh, while listening to Paul's kind of, you know, diagnosis of some of the, you know, basically the problems of, you know, agriculture and GMOs under global capitalism. Um, and it made me curious about if, he or if anyone else wants to chime in, um, if you have any familiarity with the Chinese agricultural system and what the assessment might be, just because I know that that's one that has, you know, some level of, obviously, you know, has in the past had some pretty horrific famines, but then in more recent times has been able to be very productive while having very small uh, individual farms. So I was curious if there was any, any thoughts about that. Yeah, so I would say that I kind of think the Chinese agricultural system is that proverbial elephant, and I've felt a couple of parts of it, but I don't know whether I'm feeling the trunk or the foot or the tail. Um, I visited some very small farms. Uh, I have a colleague uh, who has invited me, and grew up on a farm and during the famine years and uh, with seven or eight brothers and sisters in a little tiny village. And he's taken me back to the village where he grew up. He told me that he had to conceal the fact that I was there from the authorities because they wouldn't let me see that um, if they had known I was there. Uh, but uh, it's uh, what you see is the remnants of uh, the kind of system that you're describing in your question. And I say remnants because uh, although it's historically been a very productive system. Uh, there was nobody in that village under the age of about 45 or 50. And none of their kids are planning to farm. Uh, all of the kids uh, have been sent away to, you know, of course they only, only have one child in each family now, uh, but that child often has been sent away uh, to live in the city and nobody's planning on farming those farms. I've talked with some, uh, I, I did talk with some uh, uh, people that are trying to uh, lease the entitlement that some of those small producers uh, have, and they're finding difficulty mobilizing the labor to actually make the farm work. Uh, at the other end of the, of the scale, uh, there is some uh, thought and you know, definitely some thought within uh, the policy level thinking. Um, I was about to say the party thinking uh, that uh, we really, that it's time for China to sort of replace the agricultural system with something that looks much more like the U.S. The U.S. is always the model, right? 
it's never Europe, it's always the US. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, they would have to do a lot of work to make that work. Uh, they would have to transform the landscape that I saw. Uh, so it would be a massive transformation, but it is being undertaken at least in some commodities. Uh, certainly some of the animal production has already started to move towards uh, CAFOs. And um, so there, it strikes me that they're in a very experimental stage. The other thing I would mention is that they actually are really interested in agricultural ethics. And they uh, are, so I would just, if I could make a comment about the discussion, people have been talking a lot about that second layer of the cake that I described, but nobody's talking about the other, the other issues, right? The sense in which agriculture as a set of institutions is embedded in a larger society. And it strikes me that uh, agricultural scientists are strikingly uncurious about that and unwilling to engage in those discussions. And I would make a, make a contrast to people who work in medical genetics or medical biotechnology because they are very engaged and they have created entire departments of bioethics in their institutions. And the scientists interact with the people in those departments and the people in those departments interact with the public and with, uh, with uh, undergraduates. None of that happens in agriculture. So I think there is, uh, I see this as a problem for agriculture. It's part of the reason agriculture struggles with some of these things. But I also see it as a, as a kind of lack of responsibility to engage with a whole set of social institutions on the part of uh, people who run agricultural research institutions. Um, and uh, so I think there are, you know, that's not a problem I talked about in my presentation, but um, I think that, you know, when you get, you know, sort of down to the tiny details, uh, people who are, are making decisions are thinking about that second layer of the cake, but they're not thinking very much about what agriculture as a whole should look like down at the bottom level, nor are they thinking about the way that agricultural technologies might interact with uh, some of these broader kinds of cultural factors, the way that people perceive heredity and the way in which our ideas of heredity have been transformed by genetic metaphors and the role that farmers and seed companies and agricultural metaphors have played in all of that. So I don't expect, you know, the guy who's a plant breeder to, to deal with that, but I do expect the institution, uh, the university, the research institute to have employed uh, somebody that deals with that. And I'd also say that uh, economists and sociologists uh, who are kind of classic uh, ag economists and rural sociologists are not doing a very good job of that either. So I've, I've kind of had my rant. I'll stop. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I think that's, you know, why things like the GES Center are so valuable, right, is having that communication between different uh, areas. All right, thank you. Absolutely. Um, and actually, that's kind of a a decent segue into Nora's questions, which which I'll voice um, for her, which, you know, is posed to Mark and Arif and was asking whether they might speak to, um, you know, some of the things that that Paul has talked about um, and whether those things have been um, present or are being worked on or altogether absent uh, in, in your experience. So, um, Mark or Arif? Mark can add more to it. So I, I'd start with the like initial thing is that, you know, uh, for example, for Bangladesh, um, I'd share a rather a different dimension. Government is trying to promote 
you know, like uh, a newer version of agriculture. Uh, instead of that classical, you know, like model that we had from our ancestors, they're promoting technological advancement and modernization of agriculture and commercialization of agriculture, to be very specific. So by meaning of commercialization, we are actually declining and keeping aside this smallholder farmer. Uh, uh, because unfortunately, this smallholder farmer in next generation, they may not, they may not survive. Uh, as they have heard from the China, we have same picture in Bangladesh. The newer, younger generation are not interested to work in the field. So uh, when you make agriculture commercialization, then you make a cohort, you bring multiple smallholder farmers together, you form a different commercial community as we have seen in North, North Korea. So those kind of models are actually uh, being, you know, like uh, in an idea and, and started by piloting those kind of things. And with that, for uh, public research institute and for scientists, they are actually limited and confined in, in making the decision. Um, we have international protocol, compliance, Cartagena protocol, local, local law and regulations. And for even a minor change with CRISPR gene editing, you have to follow the same procedure for many of the countries. So actually, this is a complicated thing. I mean, of how much time you want to invest for a research, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years for golden rice, it's been almost like 35 years. Uh, do we have that kind of uh, freedom? Do you have that kind of uh, resource to, to keep investing? So those are the like decisions that I think we need to take. When one thing is deregulated in one country, do we need to follow the same thing to do the same thing for another country? You know, so these are the questions that are constantly asked uh, by the scientists and ultimately people who will get benefit from the product uh, they are long, you know, like uh, uh, behind from, from the technology. Uh, it's developed by the scientists from Public Research Institute, given to Ministry of Ag or to Ministry of Environment for deregulation. And by the time we get deregulated, we either get resistance if it's a, like pest resistance crop, or we have a different new rice variety, which is more popular than the original golden rice trade. So, I mean, these are the things that I, I think it's timely to reconsider for everyone so that we can have a specific time-bound period and, uh, you know, like quick decision so that the technologies are intended for development for the farmer, for the community, reach them on a timely manner. Over to Mark. Yeah, I don't know exactly which question I'm, I'm going to answer, but I uh, just want to say a few, few things that might be relevant. Um, the... You know, we, 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 it's true that in the plant, uh, the green biotech community, there is not the same level of ethical debate and, and concerns than in the, uh, in the red biotechnology, as we, as we say. Uh, we, we have uh, usually in every institution, we have a biosafety committee. And we have an ethical committee. Sometimes they work together. Sometimes they are separate. Um, but uh, to my knowledge, they haven't been very active specifically on gene technology. Um, having said that, it doesn't mean that there, there are no concerns that we, we are not confronted. For example, we have situation where we know that the, uh, the local community uh, would not would not, in general, do not regard uh, new technology as being welcome. And I was referring to the case of the Andes in Peru, where 
um, native potatoes are the proudness of many communities, of villages, of uh, small farmers. They, they will say, this is my potato, my native potato. It has so much value. A lot of them are uh, cultural values more than just uh, uh, biophysical uh, traits. And so in those situations, we clearly um, do not, in, by any means, do, do, do not want to impose uh, a, a technology, a, a potato variety that would have resistance to pest and disease, that would bring advantage. We do not want, we do not even try to impose, we just respect the opinion of the community. It's the same way as in the US, you have a wonderful beer that is gluten-free, that is GM-free, that is, uh, you know, cholesterol-free. Don't try to impose that to Belgium. The Belgium will never accept that. We have the, you know, probably one of the highest diversity in beer in the in the world. So you, you, it will a product like that will never work. So that's <clears throat> what I would like to say. It's true that we have less bioethic discussions, but we have we have some, and I think it's a bit different the green biotechnology and the the red uh, biotechnology. Right. Um, thank you all so much for that conversation. Um, it's 12.58. We, there are more questions to be asked, but I think considering the time, it would, that feels like a good kind of stopping point. And so I think it'd be best to just kind of leave it there. Um, so I know Jean had a question, Sebastian and Sashin. Um, those are kind of still in the chat. Um, so sorry we didn't get to those. Right now I'm gonna just turn things over to Don. Yeah, I thank you, Nolan. I want to say a big thank you to Arif, Mark, and Paul for coming today and, and talking with us. It was a very interesting talk. I will gl gladly send you uh, some of the additional questions that we have and links to the video recordings. I also wanted to thank the uh, third cohort of students from Ag Biofuse for putting to together today's panel presentation. So a big thank you to everyone, and I hope that we can continue to be in communication. Thank you.